You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Well, good morning. I'm Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here, in case you don't know who I am. Um, yeah, the first service was a little interesting. Uh, normally, normally when I'm preparing these messages, uh, if, if I'm going to tell a story that involves somebody else other than myself, uh, I, I usually try and talk to them first uh, and get their, get their approval. Um, but no, uh, my parents figure prominently in this first story. Uh, and I, originally I thought they were going to be out of town. They had said, they had mentioned maybe possibly being here, and then they were going out of town. And then my mom texted last night and said, hey, we're coming back early. Uh, we'll be there for the first service tomorrow. And I was like, all right, we'll just deal with the fallout. So lunch may get a little spicy uh, a little bit later. You may see that Crosspoint's looking for a new pastor. Anyway, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Amarillo, uh, which is up in the Panhandle. Uh, and we, we grew up not far from Paladera Canyon, and, uh, and Paladera Canyon is was one of our favorite places to go as a family, uh, to just hang out. It wasn't uncommon for us to go and spend a weekend camping or, uh, or exploring the trails. One of the, uh, one of the more, let's call it popular attractions in the canyon is the Lighthouse Trail. And it's this trail that leads hikers, uh, on a winding path through the canyon floor, out to a rock structure that is in the shape of a lighthouse. And it's one of those things that sounds fun in theory, but then you remember that it's a six-mile hike, round trip, and it's not really that hard to talk yourself out of it. You know what? I'm good. We've got a, we've got a big picture of Lighthouse Rock hanging over our fireplace at home. I don't need to see it in person. Let's just let's go find some cardboard. We'll slide down Devil's Slide again. Logical for a 14-year-old. But anyway... Uh, one Sunday at lunch after church, we decide this is the day that we're going to tackle Lighthouse Trail. <clears throat> and by we decide, I mean my dad said, get in the car. We're going to Lighthouse Trail today. So I was 14. My sister, my, my two younger sisters were 13 and 5. <clears throat> and, and about two miles into this forced six-mile death march, my sisters and I are tired. And we're thirsty, which of course is going to manifest itself in whining. So we step off to the side, we take a break, and my dad opens up the portable cooler that, uh, that he had slung over his shoulder because you don't go on a six mile hike in Texas in the middle of July without something to drink. That's just stupid. So he opens his cooler and he hands each of us an ice cold Coke. Humans are made up of roughly 60% water. So when you're thirsty, it's your body saying, I need more water, right? Water is the only thing that's going to adequately uh, satisfy that thirst. Coke, of course, has enough caffeine and sodium and sugar in it to kill a small horse. But my sisters and I, we didn't care, right? The, uh, there aren't any water fountains on this particular trail. We're being handed something that's cold. And it tastes great, and it's available right now. But by the time we push through that last mile and get to our destination, we're all out of Coke. My dad is frustrated because 
we're all thirsty and complaining again. And my mom, God bless her, she's just trying her best to keep the peace. And adding to this, nobody is interested in Lighthouse Rock. Ooh, ah, wow. It looks just like the picture we have at home. Can we go back now? Right? So if it wasn't already obvious up to this point, it's clear we made a huge mistake. Several, actually. And we still have a three-mile hike back to the car. So to mitigate, try and mitigate the fallout of what has become a pretty disastrous uh, afternoon, we decide that our car must surely be right over that hill. So we're going to take a shortcut. Yeah, talk about the bad idea in the history of bad ideas. So one hill turns into two, two hills turn into three, and all of our all of a sudden our shortcut that we're trying to navigate is taking far longer than it would have if we had just taken the three-mile trail that we were supposed to be on anyway. So at one point, we have to cross over uh, in Paladar Canyon. These, there's these large rock formations kind of on the floor of the canyon. <clears throat> we have to cross over one of these formations. And, and these, uh, these rock formations, they get these, uh, they get pockmarked and, and these large puddles of water form in them, right? And I don't know how these puddles survive the Texas heat, but survive they have. And so we come over this rock and we see these big puddles of water because <clears throat> it hadn't rained in weeks. The thing is, these puddles uh, are a breeding ground for, for all kinds of bacteria and nastiness. And any survivalist in the world is going to tell you not to drink this water. It's, it's, it's simply not good for you. But those guys have obviously uh, never done a lighthouse trail in Texas in July. So I knew I shouldn't. I drank it anyway. <clears throat> if, you've, if you've ever uh, been to Mexico and ignored your friend's advice to not drink the tap water there, uh, if you, if you probably have a good idea of what my next few days looked like. But, uh, in that moment, in that moment, all I could think about was how thirsty I was. And so I drank that nasty, festering tank water until I wasn't thirsty anymore. So why do I tell you that story? Well, this week, we are, uh, wrapping up our study through the chosen. <clears throat> and we come to a story of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Now, it's a reasonably familiar story. You may have heard of it. Um, you may have heard it several times. Uh, but it's, it's a story of Jesus' conversation with this unnamed woman, uh, Samaritan woman, outside at a well outside of her village. And while talking to her, Jesus is going to use thirst and water to relate physical thirst to the spiritual thirst that, that we experience uh, in humanity. Now, I remember my Sunday school teacher's they would talk about this a lot, right? I heard this, I heard this story a lot in Sunday school. Uh, but when, when I started researching for this message, I was, I was really surprised that there isn't a ton of sermon content out there. Um, most of what I was finding was, uh, concentrated on John's writings about the seven miraculous signs of Jesus, um, which, you know, the, uh, the seven miraculous signs are water to wine. Um, he heals the official son, he heals the lame man in Bethesda. There's uh, feeding the 5,000, they're walking on water, healing a blind man, and finally raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm not trying to marginalize the significance of those at all. They are super important. Um, but 
when I was looking around, it did kind of seem like this story about a nameless Samaritan woman who has been marginalized and cast out from society is ironically overlooked. In my opinion, this story, uh, the story of the woman at the well, really serves as a linchpin for the rest of John's gospel. Um, it, it, it works to set a precedent of how Jesus pursues a relationship with us when we accept his invitation. By the way, Mike Cooper preached a phenomenal message last week on invitations. Uh, if you haven't, uh, if you weren't here or you haven't watched it, I would recommend finding it on our YouTube channel. Um, after service, because uh, I'm talking. Anyway, um, but yeah, this is a story full of powerful lessons, even today. Uh, lessons about love and purpose and salvation and worth. Specifically, how the world tells us we should assess our value. And how astronomically different that is from how we're valued through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And there are three key elements from the story that... Uh, in my opinion, show how Jesus directs us in our spiritual thirst and that we don't have to be defined by any mistakes we might have made along the way. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 4. We're going to be reading, uh, we're going to be reading verse 1 through 26. Uh, if, if you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. We're going to have it up on the screen. Uh, you can just follow along with me. So, We are starting in verse 1, John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you, And who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. She said, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But... Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. The woman said, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And the woman said, replied, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. Certainly you spoke the truth. The woman said, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. So the first thing I want to point out uh, is how Jesus intentionally pursues us. Jesus intentionally pursues us. During this time, Israel uh, was split into three different regions, right? So you, you had Galilee to the north, you had Judea in the south, and you had Samaria that was kind of sandwiched in between. Now, earlier in John, Jesus... Uh, it, John writes about how Jesus had gotten sideways with uh, with the Pharisees, and he was wanted for questioning. So he and the disciples decide to leave Judea and head back to Galilee. And normally, if someone were traveling from Judea to Galilee, the logical route was go through Samaria. On the graphic, it's the it's the green line. You would just go a straight line north through Samaria to Galilee. It's a distance of about 60 or 70 miles. But Jews and Samaritans, they didn't really get along. Right? In fact, they hated each other. And they preferred to avoid any kind of interaction with each other. And so what they would do is, and on the graphics is the yellow line, they would follow a trail to the east, cross the Jordan River, go up through Perea, and then enter Galilee, north of Samaria, completely wiping out any chance that they might come into contact with Samaritans. Now, a trip that would normally take as little as two or three days would end up taking closer to a week. True story, I met a guy once uh, who told me he would go out of his way to drive all the way around Brazos County so that he, and I quote, would rather do that than risk getting aggy dirt on his tires. I knew that one would go over well. But it was kind of like that, right? Uh, So many centuries before this, Assyria... Assyria had come in and conquered Israel, right? And they enslaved many of the Jewish men. And when that happened, Assyrian men started moving into the region that would become become known as Samaria, and they began breeding with the women there, uh, creating a new race of people that was half Jew and half Gentile, Gentile being not Jew. But because of this, Jews viewed Samaritans as unclean. They were an unclean people, and they would rather add days to their trip walking around Samaria than to take the shorter route if it meant they didn't have to talk to any Samaritans. But in verse 4, it says that he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria on the way. Yes, this is technically true, but probably not in the context that you're thinking. See, Jesus had spent the last few months uh, gathering supplies and, and disciples For a ministry that he knew was rapidly approaching. And the route through Samaria was clearly marked. Because it was traveled often by Jewish people. It wasn't a lack of options that led Jesus to Samaria. It was purpose. 
Jesus had a very specific reason for traveling the shorter route. And by the time, so by the time Jesus and the disciples get to the well near Sychar, scripture tells us it's about noontime. They're tired. They're hot. They're probably out of food and, and most likely they're thirsty. So when the disciples go into town to get food, Jesus sitting alone, he looks around, he sees this Samaritan woman walking towards the well. And when she gets there, Jesus decides, I'm going to start a conversation with this woman. This is the reason that I came to Samaria. And so he asks the woman for a drink. And this is the, this is the second point that I want to highlight is how Jesus initiates a relationship with us. Jesus initiates a relationship with us. When Jesus asks the woman for a drink, she's surprised. But her surprise is not without merit. In her culture, it was considered socially unacceptable for men and women to speak in social settings. Additionally, the time to draw water was, uh, the best time to draw water was early in the morning, right? When it's still cool. Not at noontime when it's already gotten hot. Drawing water from the well was, uh, it was a social event, right? All the, all the women in town would gather together first thing in the morning and they would all go to the well as a group and talk about whatever it is that women talk about. I mean, I don't know. But the fact that this woman was coming to draw water alone and at the most inconvenient time of the day were clear indications that as a Samaritan woman, Not only was she rejected by Jews, but she was also considered a social outcast and ignored by her own people. Now, if you've ever experienced rejection of any kind, especially at these levels, it feels pretty lousy. I remember one time uh, when I was in high school, it was a Sunday afternoon. I was was sitting around the house. I was bored. Uh, I had the house to myself. My parents and my youngest sister were out shopping. Uh, my older sister had run off with some of her friends. Uh, I didn't know where they were. But I was bored. So I started calling around to some of my buddies to see if um, I wanted to hang out, go to the movies or something. And But I, I was finding that as I called their houses, um, none of them were home, right? My my, uh, my my friend's parents would answer the phone and be like, no, sorry, they're out, or whatever. So I ended up sitting around sitting around the house by myself. I didn't really think anything of it. Um, until later that evening when my sister got back and started telling me about how much fun she'd had that afternoon. Apparently, uh, she had been, um, she spent the afternoon, she and her friend had spent the afternoon down at Paladera Canyon uh, rock climbing with a big group of people. Sounds like fun. So I asked her who all was there. And the names that she starts to list off start to sound very familiar, like all my friends familiar, Right? Turns out that morning at church, my sister had overheard uh, overheard one of my buddies mention that they were all going to go rock climbing as a group that afternoon. <clears throat> and she expressed an interest in going, and, and my buddy told her, yes, of course, you and your friend are more than welcome to go, as long as you don't say anything to Kenny. Apparently, Apparently, my ex-girlfriend, whom I'd recently broken up with, was invited to this particular little play day. And that meant that I was not welcome. So the the whole group intentionally conspired to keep me out of the loop. Uh, Yes, I know. Very sad. Anyway, 
honestly, I wanted to crawl into a hole and knock him out for about a year. I, I felt terrible. Few things are, are as bad as feeling rejected, especially by those closest to you. Only recently have, have psychologists actually started tuning into the effects of rejection. According to a recent article posted by the American Psychological Association, researchers have found surprising evidence that the pain of being excluded is not so different from the pain of physical injury. It, they found that it fires off the same areas of the brain. In addition, they're finding that being on the receiving end of rejection can cause a cascade of emotional and cognitive repercussions like anger, depression, jealousy, aggression, and poor impulse control. Now, this will typically, according to the article, result in two things, one one or two things happening, right? Either you seek acceptance from a completely different element that is not always healthy, or you completely withdraw yourself from everything and everyone. It seems that the Samaritan woman in this story chose both. She is intentionally planning out each day's tasks for the most inconvenient time to avoid the pain of being reminded what this world really thinks of her, that she is worthless. Too often, even today, we base our sense of self, uh, of identity and self-worth off of what other people tell us about ourselves. In his conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus, Jesus is using the water in the well as an image for the eternal life that, that he offers people. Now, the, the term living water actually has double meaning here. In the context of a well, it would mean fresh a steady supply of fresh, life-giving water, right? And this is exactly how the woman understands it. But Jesus explains to her that the water he's talking about is very special and that, that people who drink this water will never be thirsty again. And that sounds like a deal to her. Because drawing water from the well every day is exhausting, both physically and mentally and emotionally. However, Jesus is not talking about H2O water. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah refers to God as a fountain of living water. And Jesus is applying this to himself, right? He is God. He satisfies people's longing or thirst to know God personally. What Jesus is doing, he's trying to use an analogy that, that would be familiar to the woman. <clears throat> to express that her past doesn't define her future, and that because of God's grace, she doesn't need to continue living this solitary existence of shame and rejection. But she's, she's not really picking up what he's putting down. So he, he changes his approach. And this is the third and final point that I want to highlight, uh, is how Jesus redefines our identity. He redefines our identity. Suddenly he tells the woman, all right, go get your husband. And he's insinuating he's happy to explain everything as long as they're both here, right? Once you and your husband are here, I'll explain what I mean. And when she answers she has no husband, Jesus takes the opportunity to show his divinity. 
right? Her past is, is not something she's proud of, and in all likelihood, not something that she would have shared with anyone, much less a stranger. So in this story, she concludes that Jesus must be a prophet, right? And Okay, not, not exactly, but this is a big step toward her recognizing uh, his true identity. The fact that Jesus knew everything about her also opened the way to address her deepest question. A question that we have all likely had at some point. Where do I find God? Now she's referring, of course, to a physical place. Because at the time, Jews and Samaritans, they had different ideas about where where to go to worship God. Samaritans said go here. Jews said go here. They're, they're essentially just saying the same thing. Jews and Samaritans are both essentially saying, if you want to worship God, you have to be in the right place, at the right time, with the right people around, while wearing the right clothes. Everything has to be perfect before you start worshiping, or else God won't hear you. That's what they're saying. Now, in a sense, sometimes we apply that same logic today. As soon as I fix this, as soon as I improve myself, as soon as I get better at this, then I'll start going to church again, or reading the Bible again, or praying again. At times, we all view Jesus through this very narrow lens and convince ourselves that we aren't good enough for him. We aren't good enough for a relationship with him. And what Jesus is saying is that God is not localized. He surrounds us. He can be found anywhere. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This means we can worship God anywhere. You don't need a temple or a church. You don't, you don't have to wait till Sunday or a particular day of the week, or a particular time of day. There's a line in this episode where Jesus tells the Pharisees, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. God does not ask us to be perfect or have our life in order. Our worship is not confined, and it's not restrained. Jesus looks at you, and he says, you are the one I want, just as you are. Bring me all your stuff. Bring me all your baggage, all this weight, and let me carry it for you. At 19 years old, Kevin Hines was fighting a battle, and he was losing. His battle was against an evil that was slowly convincing him that his life had no value. And on the morning of September 25th, 2000, Kevin couldn't fight any longer and decided to end his life. He saw no hope, he saw no point, and he saw no future beyond that day. And as he rode the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, he figured if somebody on that bus said something, anything to him, he would take that as a sign and not go through with it. But nobody did. A short time later, Kevin was standing at the four-foot railing near the center of the bridge. And when he let go of the railing and jumped, 
Kevin immediately regretted his decision. In his last few seconds before hitting the water, Kevin cried out to God, Please save me. I don't want to die. It's estimated that 98% of people that jump from the Golden Gate Bridge do not survive. I say estimated because they stopped keeping track a long time ago. Kevin, who was falling feet first, is part of the 2% that have. When he impacted the water, he crushed three vertebrae in his back. He broke both legs. And he was sucked 70 feet below the surface. Somehow he was able to float back up. But now, Kevin considered the irony of his situation. He was unable to move, much less swim, and a combination of the tide and the cold water threatened to drown him. Adding to his anxiety, every time his head sank below the waves, he felt something brush against him, and he figured he was about to be dinner for a hungry shark, right? So when Coast Guard showed up, uh, arrived on scene a short time later to pull Kevin's Near lifeless body out of the, uh, out of the water. They saw swimming around him a sea lion. And each time that his head would dip below the water, the sea lion would dive down and bump him back up so he didn't drown. As soon as Kevin recovered from his injuries, he became an advocate for suicide prevention and he now travels the world with his wife of 14 years telling his story and saving lives. He still struggles. Sometimes, uh, some days are worse than others. Or harder than others. But his identity is no longer found in the hopelessness that he experienced that day 22 years ago. After her conversation with Jesus at the well, the Samaritan woman was no longer burdened with the identity, with an identity based on worldly opinion. If you look at her reaction... Later in scripture, once she realizes that she's talking to the Messiah, she drops everything. These water jugs that she's been carrying up there every day at the worst time of day so she didn't have to talk to anyone, gone. And she takes off running back towards the village and anyone that she comes in contact with, which this whole village has pretty much outcast her from society fully. She is telling everyone about Jesus. And scripture tells us many Samaritans were saved because of what she said. When Jesus enters the picture, everything changes. Jesus is not just a teacher and he is not just a prophet. He is the son of God. And we are so broken and so lost because of sin that the son of God had to come and die for us. Jesus Jesus doesn't stand far off from our suffering. He enters it. And he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. So that he might bring us closer to a God that cares. As Jesus went to the grave and rose triumphantly, we have hope that no matter how shallow or deep our valleys might be, We have a God who is intentional in his pursuit of us. He initiates a relationship with us and he redefines our identity. Why? Because he loves us. We're his children. 
Because we're his children and he loves us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for allowing us to worship you in freedom and wherever we need to. Father God, we come to you, come to you this morning on our knees begging for the salvation that can only be found through Jesus Christ. Father God, please forgive us. Forgive us where we failed you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.